You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. So today we're going to be looking at John chapter 7. Reading the last part, so starting in verse 40 to the end of the chapter. You find it on the welcome card on the church's website or behind me or there's some Bibles along the edges of the aisles if that is easier for you. All right, so starting from verse 40. On hearing his words, some of the people said, surely this man is the prophet. Others said, he's the Messiah. Still others asked, how can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus, the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees, who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards replied. You mean he has deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted. Have any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob that knows nothing of the law, there is a curse on them. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and was, who was one of their number, asked, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Look into it and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. Thanks, Tracy. Uh, uh, my name's Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here at DPC. Uh, if you'd like to follow along with an outline of my sermon, you can find that on the welcome card. It'd be great if you could have John chapter 7, in particular that passage uh, that Tracy just read open, uh, so you can follow along as well. Uh, let's pray. Our Father, we thank you uh, for this opportunity to gather together. Uh, we know that you long for us to hear your voice, uh, to know you more, uh, and in particular to see more of Christ your Son uh, and to delight in him, to trust in him, to follow him. Uh, and so we pray, Father, that that would, be, uh, that would be the fruit of our time together as we look at your word today. Uh, in his name we pray. Amen. Well, I, I do wonder if you've ever found yourself thinking, uh, but I thought Jesus came to bring peace on earth. Has that thought ever popped into your mind? Uh, it's right there in the Bible, isn't it? It's a pretty reasonable thought, right? In Luke chapter 2, verse 14, after Jesus is born in Bethlehem, uh, Luke tells us that there were choirs of angels in heaven, and they said, glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth, peace, among whom those his favour rests. I don't know about you, but I certainly grew up uh, at Christmas time hearing these sort of words repeated over and over again. Jesus came to bring peace on earth. So when I got a little bit older, I grew up in a Christian home, uh, but in my kind of later teenage years, I kind of took ownership of my faith for myself, started taking my faith in Jesus a bit more seriously. I was in my philosophy class at uni. I decided to kind of go public with my faith in Jesus, to talk a little bit about it. And I've got to say, 
my life and relationships weren't flooded with peace because of Jesus. Instead, I experienced a whole lot of tension and hostility and rejection. There was division because of Jesus. I remember thinking, is it really worth it? Is it worth following someone who seems to be such a polarising figure, such a divisive figure? I wonder if you've ever experienced something similar to that. You decided to become a Christian or you started taking your faith in Jesus more seriously. You took a new step of obedience in your kind of journey of following Jesus. And instead of experiencing peace, you would experience all sorts of tension and hostility in the relationships with people, family and friends, work colleagues that you love. How did you respond? Did you ask that question, is it really worth following Jesus if he's going to be such a polarising figure? If he's going to cause so much tension in relationships with people I love? If you haven't experienced that yourself yet, I dare say you might experience it in the future if you're a Christian, or if you're not yet a Christian and you choose to become a Christian. I also think you've probably you probably experienced sitting next to someone else who's experiencing it in their network of relationships. So today, as we look at this passage at the end of John chapter 7, I want us all to see that, yes, one day Jesus is going to bring complete peace on earth, But right now, people are divided over who Jesus is. One day, Jesus is going to bring complete peace on earth. It's going to be wonderful. Right now, though, people are divided over who Jesus is. So we're going to look at this passage in a few different sections. Uh, If you've got it open, you'll see first in verses 40 to 44 that the Jewish crowds are divided over who Jesus is. Take a look there in verse 40. John says... Uh, On hearing Jesus' words, some of the people, some of the crowd, said, surely this man is the prophet. Jesus' words here is the invitation in verses 37 to 39. It's a really wonderful invitation that Jesus gives. Remember, he says, if there's anyone here who's spiritually thirsty, they should come to me and I'll give them streams of living water that will satisfy the deepest longings of their soul. It's a wonderful invitation. And John tells us that as the crowd hears that invitation, they hear Jesus' words, uh, some of them at least say, surely this man is the prophet. And maybe you remember this from John chapter 6. This title, The Prophet, it goes back to a promise that God made to Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 to 18. You can look up that promise later on, but but the gist is that Moses was a great prophet, but God promised that one day he would send a prophet who was greater than Moses, the ultimate prophet, right? the prophet. That's who the people here in this crowd are talking about. So some people hear Jesus' invitation in verses 37 to 39, they say, surely this guy is the prophet, the prophet like Moses. And this isn't the first time they've done this. You could flick back to John chapter 6 if you like. Uh, Gabby referenced it, or should say the G-Dog referenced it in her kid spot, uh, that that, uh, Jesus performed this wonderful miracle, feeding thousands of people with bread 
in a remote place, just like Moses in the book of Exodus, who God worked through to miraculously feed uh, all of God's people with bread in the wilderness. And what do the people say at the end of John 6? I think it's in verses 14 or 15. They say, surely this man must be the prophet. Likewise here in John 7, what does Jesus offer? He offers streams of living water in a world that often feels like a wilderness. In the context of the Feast of Tabernacles that the Jewish people are celebrating, which was to remember their time in the wilderness. And so Jesus is going back to Exodus chapter 17, where Moses strikes a rock in the wilderness and streams of living water flow out, offering God's people life and satisfaction. And so again, the people say, surely this man is the prophet. But the other people say something different, don't they? Other people say he's the Messiah. I remember that that word Messiah means God's anointed one. Speaking here of God's promised king, the one who's anointed or empowered by God's spirit uh, to come and establish God's kingdom, to bring all the wonderful blessings of heaven down to earth. That's Jesus, some people say. He is the Messiah, God's king. But other people say something different. You see there, still others say uh, he can't be the Messiah. Uh, I'm finding my spot in my notes. Yeah, still others asked, how can the Messiah come from Galilee? Sorry, this is squelchy for me. It might seem a little bit strange to you, to some of us, if you've been around the church for a bit, you've been a bit familiar with the Bible, uh, for this Jewish crowd to separate these two figures, right? They've got thinking about the prophet like Moses, uh, and then they're thinking about God's king, the Messiah, right? But, but in Jesus' day, they actually did think about these figures as two separate figures. They thought, well, the prophet will come, and then the Messiah will come. If you've kind of read your Bible a little bit and you've heard of enough talks, you might think, well, of course, these two figures come together in Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate prophet, either the one who brings the ultimate words from God. And Jesus is the ultimate king, either the one who came to establish God's kingdom. But in Jesus' day, the Jewish crowds that are in Jerusalem uh, they thought of these as two separate figures. Uh, and so the crowds are divided over who Jesus is. And indeed, the crowds think, well, Jesus, some of the people in the crowds think, well, Jesus can't be the Messiah. Notice their reason for that. Right? The Messiah cannot come out of Galilee. By the way, we saw this last week, didn't we? That these crowds in Jerusalem uh, really think they're clued in to where Jesus came from. Right, they know that he grew up in Nazareth in Galilee. And they're right to say uh, that the Messiah won't come from Nazareth in Galilee, that the Messiah will be a descendant of David. Uh, the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem, they say. So if you see that in verse 42, doesn't the scriptures say that the Messiah will come uh, from David's descendants uh, and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? They're right. 
note that the, the Old Testament, that the Jewish scriptures do say that the Messiah will be a descendant of David. Uh, that there's a bunch of places where the Old Testament speaks about that. Uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, it's probably one of the key promises that this crowd in Jerusalem would have had in mind. 2 Samuel 7 verses 12 and 13, uh, God says to King David, uh, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, uh, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. That's a reference to building a temple for God. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Actually, these Jewish people in Jerusalem are right to expect that the Messiah, God's king, the one from 2 Samuel 7 who's going to establish God's kingdom that will last forever, right? not like the kingdoms of all the kings of Israel, they're right to expect that king to be a son of David, a descendant of David. You see, there's a kind of tragic irony in this passage. Because the crowds are right in what they expect of the Messiah, they're just wrong in applying that expectation to Jesus. Because Jesus, despite growing up in Nazareth in Galilee, is a descendant of David. His father Joseph belonged to the line of David. So Matthew, in his gospel, starts his gospel by saying, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David. But the crowds don't get that. The crowds are divided over who Jesus is. Uh, nor do they recognise where Jesus was born, right? He was born in Bethlehem. Uh, again, they're right to expect the Messiah to be born in Bethlehem. Uh, you can read Micah chapter 5, verse 2 later on. Right? Micah chapter 5, verse 2, God promises there that even though Bethlehem uh, is a very small and insignificant town, his Messiah, the, his promised king, it will be born there. Uh, so you see the crowd's problem in John 7. They're saying, wait a second... We know Mary and Joseph. We know they live in Nazareth. So Jesus can't be the Messiah. A little do they know what happened in Luke chapter 2. Remember the Roman emperor at the time called a census? And because Joseph was from Bethlehem, we read this in Luke chapter 2 verse 4. Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea uh, to Bethlehem, the town of David because he belonged to the house and line of David. And then in verses 6 and 7, Luke records the birth of Jesus in the town of Bethlehem. So again, in a sense, the crowds know their Old Testament. But they're right about where the Messiah should be born. should be born in Bethlehem. They're just wrong about Jesus. But they're wrong to assume that because he grew up in Nazareth, he wasn't born in Bethlehem. Who is Jesus? Is he the prophet? Is he the Messiah? Is he not the Messiah? Verse 43. The people were divided because of Jesus. Now we don't want to soften that word divided. Uh, it's actually where we get our English word schism. That's the Greek word. So Jesus is creating great schisms amongst the Jewish people. 
And that's not a unique thing in John's Gospel. In John chapter 9, uh, verse 16, uh, we're told that some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God uh, because he doesn't keep the law of the Sabbath. Uh, While others said, uh, uh, while others asked, uh, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were schismed because of Jesus, divided. Likewise, in John 10, Verse 19, the crowds who hear Jesus' teaching, again, are schismed because of Jesus. You see, Jesus isn't a kind of bland, vanilla figure that you can kind of take or leave. Jesus is a very polarising figure. He's more like the Collingwood Football Club. I don't know if there's Collingwood Football Club supporters here, but you know... You're either with them or you're against them. You love them or you hate them. Why, that's Jesus. That's Jesus. In fact, some people hate Jesus so much they want to get rid of them. I wouldn't mind that with Collingwood. Uh, But anyway, uh, verse 44, you see, some wanted to seize Jesus, uh, but no one could lay a hand on him. No one laid a hand on him. We saw that last week as well. You can scan back in John 7. This is because, John explains back there, it's because the hour of Jesus' suffering and death hasn't come. God the Father and God the Son, God the Spirit, they have a sovereign plan of the exact time when Jesus will be arrested and tried and suffer and die on the cross, and that time hasn't come yet. And until that time, Jesus is protected by the loving and powerful hand of his Father, so the hands of no one else can get hold of him. It's only when the loving and powerful hand of his father is removed that anyone can touch Jesus. One day, Jesus is going to bring complete peace on earth. But right now, this crowd in Jerusalem gives us a picture of what Jesus is going to cause. People are divided over who Jesus is. Secondly, in verses 45 and 46... Uh, We see the temple guards are conflicted because of Jesus. Uh, In verse 45, John says, uh, Finally, the temple guards uh, went back to the teachers, uh, to the chief priests, rather, uh, and the Pharisees, uh, and the the Pharisees and chief priests asked them, Why didn't you bring Jesus in? I remember back in verse 32, you can scan back to verse 32. Uh, the chief priests and Pharisees issued like an official arrest warrant. Uh, And they sent their kind of temple police, that's these temple guards, they said, go and arrest Jesus and bring him back to us. Uh, So here they're pretty grumpy that the temple police, their own temple guards, have come back without Jesus. So why haven't the temple guards arrested Jesus? It's because they're conflicted about Jesus. Look in verse 46. The guards say, no one ever spoke the way that this man does. One of the things in the New Testament is that there are Roman soldiers who end up crucifying Jesus. They're kind of, you know, prety much like hardened killers. They're trained executioners, like they're real kind of thugs who are good at killing people. I reckon sometimes we assume that these temple police were exactly the same. I mean, they're actually not. Either these are religiously trained men, 
Are there members of the tribe of Levi? Are there people who are trained up in the Old Testament scriptures? They're theologically sharp. They know their Bibles. And here we see that they have heard Jesus speak and they just feel a bit conflicted about what to do with him. What do they say? They say, no one has ever spoken like this Jesus. But he speaks with a power and authority that's completely unique. He speaks with wisdom and insight. that It's just unparalleled. And so you can feel the tension within them. Right? They're there watching the crowds divided over Jesus. And on the inside, they're divided over Jesus. They know that if they arrest Jesus... Their bosses, the chief priests and Pharisees, are intent on killing Jesus. And they're not sure that they want that on their hands. So at this point, they don't arrest Jesus. The temple guards are conflicted because of Jesus. And I wonder if maybe you feel in a similar way. On the one hand, you feel drawn to Jesus. You find him a really compelling figure. His beauty, his power, his authority, his compassion, his kind of compassion towards those on the margins. Like you find Jesus a really compelling figure who you're drawn to. Uh, but on the other hand, people who are influential and powerful in your life, people who you would really like to have their approval, well, like these chief priests and Pharisees, they don't think much of Jesus. And you know that if you choose to follow Jesus or trust Jesus, it's going to cause conflict and tension in your relationship with people that you want to please. So at one and the same time, you feel drawn to Jesus and yet pushed away from Jesus. You're conflicted about Jesus. That's what, Jesus, that's what happens often. That's what's happening for these temple guards. A third in verses 47 and 48 and we see that the Pharisees mock the temple guards because of Jesus. Now look at verse 47. The Pharisees say to their temple guards, you mean he has deceived you also? So you see, the kind of primary concern of these Jewish leaders is not immediately that their temple guards have failed to arrest Jesus, but their immediate concern is that their temple guards have been deceived by Jesus. Throughout John's Gospel, the Jewish leaders would often characterise Jesus as demon-possessed, as a heretic, as someone who's a false teacher who's leading people astray. And they're concerned here that the temple guards are open to the possibility that Jesus is not a demon-possessed heretic. Like, even their kind of vague sympathy towards Jesus is considered by the chief priests and Pharisees to be absolutely shameful. Right? They're supposed to be, remember, religiously trained. They're supposed to know the Bible. They're, they're supposed to be sharp in their theology. How could they possibly consider the idea that Jesus might not be worthy of death? And so you see how much they mock the temple guards in verses 48 and 49. Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in Jesus? No. But this mob who knows nothing of the law, uh, there is a curse on them. You can hear the mockery in their tone. You know, none of the people with half a brain have believed in Jesus. 
Well, none, none of the people who are, who are kind of the upper echelons of society, none of the sophisticated people, none of the people who really know the scriptures, none of the theologically sharp people have believed in Jesus. Right? The only people who have believed in Jesus are this ignorant mob who know nothing about God's law. It's incredibly condescending, isn't it? And we've seen in John chapter 7 that, sure, the members of this crowd, it's not like they're experts in the law. Sometimes they're getting their kind of Old Testament scriptures a little bit confused and not applying them in the right way. But the fact is that a lot of their expectations about the Messiah are right. And they're grounded in the Old Testament. It's not like they know nothing about God's law. But in the minds of these Pharisees, if anyone is open to the idea that Jesus might be the prophet or the Messiah, like these temple guards, then they're just an ignorant fool who should be mocked. They drive home their contempt by saying, anyone who is kind of deceived by Jesus is under a curse. So you see the contrast in verses 37 to 39. What did Jesus say? He said, if you come to me and believe in me, you will be blessed. Streams of living water flowing to you, bringing life and satisfaction forever. The Pharisees say, no, no, no. If you go to Jesus, if you believe in Jesus, you're under a curse. And again, maybe... Some of you might have experienced this if you've become a Christian. You know that in coming to Jesus, you found truth. You found freedom. You found blessing. But others in your life say, no, no, you haven't haven't found truth. You've been deluded by a pack of lies. The real intellectuals are those who are in touch with modern philosophy those who are rational thinkers and understand science, they, they haven't believed in Jesus. You say you've found freedom in following Jesus. I say you're oppressed. Look at all the restrictions Jesus is placing on you. You say you've found blessing and satisfaction in following Jesus. Well, I say Jesus is sucking all the joy and pleasure out of your life. Because he says you shouldn't do some things. Because they won't lead to your freedom and flourishing. You see, people aren't that different today, are they? The Pharisees mock their own temple guards. The temple guards haven't even become Christians yet. They're just not sure whether they want Jesus killed. Finally, in verses 50 to 52, where we see the Pharisees treat Nicodemus, one of their own number, with contempt because of Jesus. Uh, In verse 50, John says, uh, Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked a question. Now, if you're not familiar, you can look back at John chapter 3. Uh, That's when Nicodemus went to Jesus earlier, the first half of John chapter 3. Uh, John tells us there how Jesus explained to Nicodemus, even though he's a very conservative and religious and and kind of moral man, he still needed to be born again, right? Renewed, given new life by the power of God's spirit uh, if he wanted to be a part of God's kingdom. That's the conversation that's being referenced here uh, in John chapter 7. 
And so I still don't think that's happened for Nicodemus. So I don't know for sure. But Nicodemus, in John 3, went to Jesus under the cover of darkness, I think because he was sympathetic towards Jesus, but also because he wanted to protect his reputation amongst his colleagues in the Jewish rulers, the Jewish ruling council. But here, Nicodemus is at least sympathetic towards Jesus. He wants to stand up for him. So you notice in verse 51, he says, Does our law condemn a man... Without first hearing, uh, uh, sorry, without first hearing him, to find out what he has been doing. And the answer to Nicodemus's question is no. Either the Old Testament law uh, teaches that if there are two parties that are having a dispute, like Jesus and the Jewish leaders here, then both parties should have the opportunity to have a hearing. To give their defence, if you like. Just one example is in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Uh, Moses is speaking to the judges amongst Israel, those who hear disputes, and this is what he says. Hear the disputes between your people and judge fairly. Uh, Whether the case is between two Israelites or between an Israelite and a foreigner residing among you, Uh, Do not show partiality in uh, in judging. Here, both both great and small alike, do not be afraid of anyone, for judgment belongs to God. Nicodemus is right. Where someone, in this case Jesus, is being accused of wrongdoing, they should at least have the chance to have a hearing. What say you? How do you respond to these accusations, these charges? But the Jewish leaders aren't interested in that. In fact, they're not even really interested in Nicodemus's question. All they're interested in is belittling and, and kind of demeaning Nicodemus, treating him with contempt. Notice verse 52. Are you from Galilee too, they say? Why do they ask that? It's because in their minds, the only reason that that someone would be standing up for Jesus is because they're being caught up in the Jesus hysteria up in Galilee. No one would take Jesus seriously if they were a thinking person. That's what they're getting at. That's why they say to Nicodemus, look into it. Examine the scriptures for yourself, they say, they're saying, and you will find uh, that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. They're saying you clearly haven't thought about this. You've got just kind of found yourself on the Jesus bandwagon because you can remember your hearts run way ahead of your head. Think about it a bit, and you'll see that a prophet can't come from Galilee. Which, of course, if the Jewish leaders took some of their own advice and looked carefully into the scriptures, uh, they would discover that actually quite a few prophets come from Galilee. Jonah comes from Galilee. Nahum comes from Galilee. And probably others. Some of them it's hard to know exactly where their origins are. But the point is that the Jewish leaders aren't really interested in Nicodemus' question. They're not interested in whether Jesus is a prophet. They're not interested in him being the prophet, certainly not the Messiah, because they just want to get rid of Jesus so they can maintain the status quo, so they can preserve their own power and influence amongst the people. 
So what's clear in this passage is that Jesus is a polarising figure. Jesus sometimes brings people together, but not all people. Often there are divisions because of Jesus. So let's finish. How should you respond when there's divisions around you because of Jesus? Uh, Let me suggest three things. Uh, The first thing is don't be surprised. Uh, Because Jesus is clear that this is going to happen. In Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 and 35, uh, Jesus says, Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. What? I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Jesus is not saying that he came to bring a violent revolution with literal swords. He's saying to his disciples that if you choose to come to me and believe in me and follow me, then that will cause tension and conflict and sometimes even division with people who you love, even your closest family and friends. Jesus does not put this in the fine print. It's right there. If you follow me, I demand to come first and sometimes your allegiance to me is going to cause conflict in your other relationships. So I'm not saying this shouldn't make us sad, that it shouldn't grieve us, that we shouldn't fight it hard when people that we love, family, friends, work colleagues, when they don't like the fact that we're following Jesus. Absolutely, that should burden us. It's normal for that to make us sad. But in one sense, it shouldn't surprise us. And I do want you to be prepared for it. Because it's kind of a normal part of being a follower of Jesus. So that's the first thing. When there are divisions because of Jesus, don't don't be surprised. Jesus told us this was likely to happen. And so we can be prepared. The second thing is when there's tension or divisions because of Jesus, uh, double-check that the divisions actually are because of Jesus and not because of you. You Sometimes uh, you'll be uh, talking with someone uh, and they'll say, I'm experiencing all this kind of persecution and friction and conflict and division because of Jesus. I'm seeking to faithfully follow Jesus. And you're thinking to yourself, no, you're not. It's just because you're a jerk. Why you're being rude and unpleasant and proud and dismissive of other people. You're not not experiencing division because of Jesus, it's because of you. And so we've we've got to really check our hearts and minds. Is Is this issue in this relationship actually simply because I'm seeking to faithfully follow Jesus? Or is it that I'm just being a bit ungracious or rude or judgmental? A third, uh, if there's division because of Jesus, my encouragement is keep trusting him. Keep following him. That's where I started, isn't it? But what do you do when you expected peace on earth uh, and following Jesus doesn't seem to bring that much peace? Do you keep following Jesus or do you throw in the towel? And if you should keep following Jesus, why? Why? 
Why keep following Jesus? Well, I want to suggest that the main reason you should keep following Jesus, even uh, when you experience uh, this sort of conflict and division, is that in the end, Jesus bore the cost to bring complete peace on earth. He willingly did that because of his abundant love and grace and mercy towards you. You see, I think we all understand that if there's going to be peace or reconciliation in a relationship, uh, it's uh, particularly where there's been a, a deep hurt, a wound, some pain, if there's going to be peace in that relationship, it will be costly. I'm sure you've experienced this. I certainly have. Relationships I, I, I've been in, and I know that, that if there's going to be peace in this relationship, I'm going to have to bear a cost to make that peace possible. I'll bear the cost of the damage that maybe the other person has caused to me or to the relationship. But even more commonly, the other person has to bear more of a cost for the damage that I might have caused to them in my sin and for the damage I've caused to the relationship. Peace always involves bearing a cost. And in saying that, I'm not saying... Uh, that there shouldn't be ongoing consequences for sin, that, that we should just bear the cost and move on. That's not what I'm saying. And I'm absolutely not saying that it's always good or wise or God-honouring uh, for people to kind of keep bearing the cost and stay in every relationship. There are some relationships, particularly where there's abuse, uh, where the most God-honouring thing is to get out of that relationship and stop bearing a cost. Oh, but, but I am saying that, that in general... We all understand that for there to be peace, peace on earth, peace in any relationship, then there must be a cost borne. And it's the same in our relationship with God. That's why John's Gospel ends with Jesus dying on a cross. Because on the cross, Jesus is bearing the cost to bring the peace on earth that is spoken about in the Gospel. He's bearing the cost of the damage that each and every one of us have caused in our relationship with God. The cost of that is God's judgment, God's condemnation, God's anger. And Jesus bears the fullness of that cost as God in the flesh on the cross so that we can be at peace with him. This is why you should keep following Jesus, even when he causes tension and conflict and division. Because in the end... Jesus was cut up and divided up on the cross to one day bring peace on earth. That's the man I want to follow. Right? To, to bring peace in our relationship with God, to bring peace between brothers and sisters in Christ, to bring peace to a whole creation that is broken and fragmented by sin and will one day be put together by Jesus. One day, Jesus is going to bring complete peace on earth. Right now, today, people are divided over who he is. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way your word speaks to so many of the different areas and experiences that we have in our lives. I pray that this day you would move each and every one of us to keep trusting and following in Jesus with his strength. Uh, knowing that in the end, he will bring complete peace on earth. Uh, in his name we pray. Amen.